You know, I've been on the teaching team here for about 15 years, and in the 15 years that I've been doing that, there have been two Sunday mornings where we lost power. And I've been teaching on both of them. (laughs) And so I'm searching for interpretation and meaning to this experience, and I just feel like You know, if if everything was laid out there and we knew all the reasons for everything that happened, I feel like we would see clearly that somehow Bruce Dawson is behind that. (laughs) I don't know how, but I'm sure sure that's what's happening. All right, well, not really. This evening, we're going to look at the book of Esther, like Tim mentioned, and we're going to talk about discovering God at work through the story of your life. I think we all here believe very firmly that God is at work in his world and that at the end of the day, God will accomplish his wonderful redemptive plan for the ages. We're we're rock solid on that one. I think the disconnect, though, that often leaves us feeling a little confused is understanding, okay, so just how does my ordinary life merge with God's extraordinary plan for the ages? I mean, we know God is doing something great in his world, but I think often we're just a little unsure of exactly how we fit into that. Or maybe if our seemingly small contribution is really going to make any difference at all. A couple weeks ago, we were coming back. We spent a week up in Door County, Wisconsin, looked around up there and played around a little bit. And on the way back, we thought we'd stop in Chicago and catch up with some old friends. So we met some old friends, Bill and Julie, for lunch there in Chicago on the way back. Sat down for lunch, and uh, we probably hadn't seen them in a dozen years. And started talking, and, you know, three hours later, we had to get on the road because we still had to drive back home that day. But it went like five minutes. I think you probably know how that goes. And as we left that lunch and as we were driving home, I just began to think a little bit about, about Bill's story. I first met Bill about 27 years ago in Chicago. He was a successful young businessman who was kind of just trying to figure out what is the meaning and purpose of life. He, he knew how to do business well, but he, he couldn't make sense out of the rest of life. And so I was pastoring a church in West Chicago, our cross passed, or cross passed and so we, we would get together and we'd just talk. We'd talk about life, we'd talk about God, we'd talk about whatever he wanted. And as I got to know Bill, I learned that Bill was a survivor. Bill's parents divorced very early in his life. His father was just gone. And by gone, we mean out of the picture, nowhere to be found. That left Bill and his younger brother growing up with mom. Living with mom wasn't very easy. Mom was a raging alcoholic. There wasn't much money in the home, and the money that was there usually went to booze or the bars. So Bill had his younger brother, and he was doing the best that he could to be the only responsible one in the family and take care of the younger brother. But, you know, Bill was just a child himself. How do you do that? He mentioned to me that most days they'd come home from school, and when they would come home, of course, the house would be empty. Mom was gone somewhere at a bar or something. They would would hope maybe Mom's going to come home. You know, maybe she'll uh, come home for dinner and have some food because there wasn't food in the house. But most nights, they would go to bed hungry because they just got disappointed with that expectation. By the time Bill turned 15, he concluded that they could probably survive better on their own out on the streets 
than they could living at home. So Bill took his younger brother and, and they set out on their own. And I remember I was sitting in that room and I thought, how do you do that? <laughs> You're 15. You don't have a driver's license. You don't have a job. You can't sign a legal document. But you're just going to go make your way taking care of your younger brother because that's better than what you got at home? Bill was a survivor. He, uh, he had survived all that. Well, Bill and I kept talking. And one day Bill came to faith in Christ. And it was my privilege to, to baptize him, to, to welcome him into the church family, to, to watch him grow. And we would meet together one-on-one and we would just talk about life and and this new path that he had started out on. And I remember one day early on, he, he mentioned he was just having a hard time with this concept of, of um, getting up and, and meeting with God and you know, letting God talk to him through the Word and, and talking to God about the day. And he was just having a hard time getting that pattern kind of established in his life. So I, I suggested, well, why don't we do this? Um, why don't you get up early? And you can spend your t- some time in the Word. I'll spend some time in the Word. And then we'll, we'll call each other at 6 a.m. in the morning. And we'll just, uh, you know, briefly talk about what we need to pray about that day. And we'll spend some time just praying over the phone. I kind of assumed we'll do this for a week or two. And, you know, that'll kind of just help him get a pattern going. All right, get something established. And, and after that, you know, he'll be, he'll be in good shape. The only thing is we just forgot to stop. <laughs> so really from 1990 to 1995, we did that every day, Monday through Friday. Just talking to God together in the morning about the things of the day. That only stopped because we moved, moved out of Kansas City and moved to, uh, or moved out of Chicago, moved to Kansas City in 95. Now, if you fast forward to Bill's story today, Bill's on the pastoral staff of a large church in West Chicago, and he's a man of great compassion. He's got a phenomenal ministry there. And I think I know why Bill has such a compassionate heart for others. It's because he knows, he remembers what it was like to be in need. He'd been there. And so when he sees someone else in need, he feels compassion for them because he can empathize with what it's like. My friend Bill is someone who I think has discovered God at work through the story of his life. And this... Tonight, in the book of Esther, we look at a woman who did the same thing, who discovered God at work through the story of her life. Let's pause for a minute and catch the background. Okay, the book of Esther, Old Testament. We're talking during the Babylon captivity. This this took place sometime after the first return. You know, they were exiled. It was the first return. Well, the events here are taking place after that first return. Uh, This happened during the first half of a king's reign named King Xerxes. And King Xerxes wound up choosing a Jewish girl named Esther to be his queen. But this whole story takes place back in Persia, back in Susa there. These are the ones that didn't leave. And the interesting thing about the book of Esther is it's the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned anywhere in the book. God's name does not show up in the book of Esther. But the story illustrates God's sovereignty. It illustrates his absolute authority and power over all of his creation. Maybe the best way to explain God's sovereignty is to just simply say, 
at the end of the day, God is in control. There's absolutely nothing that happens in the universe that's outside of God's influence and authority. As the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he has no limitations. Consider just a few of the things that the Word of God says about God. Revelation 21.6, God is above all things and before all things. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is immortal. He is present everywhere so everyone can know Him. Colossians 1.16, God created all things and He holds them all together, both in the heavens and on earth, both visible and invisible. Romans 11.33, God knows all things, past, present, and future. There is no limit to His knowledge, for God knows everything completely before it even happens. Jeremiah 32.17, Sovereign Lord, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and outstretched arm, and nothing is too hard for You. So let's look at this book and realize that God's name may not show up in it, but God's fingerprints are all over the circumstances of this book. If you like food, you would like this book. It's, it's a story of, of eight banquets. You know, banquet, 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 banquet. You know, it's a story told by food. So they just went from one banquet to the next to tell the story. So we have these eight different banquets. And what this did for the Old Testament for the Jews is it, it explained to them something called the Feast of Purim which was established based on the, the events of this book and Orthodox Jews to this day still you know, remember the, the Feast of Purim. It's part of their, uh, their annual year. A time to pause and remember God's faithfulness, God's deliverance of what happened right here. Okay, so enough, enough background. Let's dig into the story. All right, got your Bible? We'll pick the story up in 1-1. The king throws a banquet. Now, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the va his vast wealth and his kingdom and his splendor and his glory and his majesty. This is a six-month feast. Now, this guy knows how to throw a party. You're there for six months. You have people over, and after three hours, you want them to leave, right? Six months of feasting, and the, the theme of the party is, aren't I great? Now, obviously, that's always a bad idea, okay? So if you're thinking of throwing a party, you know, having all your friends over to celebrate how great you are, you know, learn from the story. Don't do it. It won't end well. 110, let's see where it starts to go south. Verse 10, on the seventh day when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine. If you need an interpretation for that, that means drunk. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served them, and they had names, to bring him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious and burned with anger. All right, so we got a drunken king making foolish requests. We got a queen who says, no, I'm not doing that. And he was asking for more than a meet and greet, in case you didn't read that in the text. So the king at this point is embarrassed and he's angry. And at that point, it means it's time for a new queen. Kings, by nature, weren't used to anyone saying no to them. And so that didn't go over well. 
All of the, the king's advisors get together and say, well, we need to have a beauty contest and we'll get the next queen for you. And it seemed like a good idea to him. We'll pick the story up in chapter 2, verse 4. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimea, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among with those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. And this young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. So at this point, there is a beauty pageant. They need a new Miss Persia. And Esther, I'm sure against her will, it's not like you volunteered for this, you were volunteered, was thrown, her name was thrown in the hat. So she was in the competition. And in, chapter, or in verse 17, we pick up the story. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, and Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials, and he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberty. So Esther becomes the queen. And at this point, the king must not have listened to the Q&A time. He probably just watched the nightgown version of the pageant. And so he's unaware that she's a Jew. He's clueless on that one. All she knows is, hey, she's pretty, I pick her. So at this point, things overall seem to be going pretty well. But the problems start to arise in chapter 3. Let's take a look at that. In 3.5, there's a, a fellow who's been promoted. He's kind of the CEO. His name is Hammond. He's now the second in command of, of Persia. And he comes up with this, 3.5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down to him or pay honor to him, well, he was enraged. Yet learning Mordecai, of who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the kingdom of Xerxes. And in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, that pure, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to the king Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among peoples in all your providences in your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of your people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if it please the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I'll give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury." So the king took his signet ring from his finger and he gave it to Haman. He said, keep your money and do with those people as you please. So Haman got his plan approved. And he immediately tweeted it out to the kingdom. In 3.13, we see that. Dispatchers were sent by couriers to all the king's providences with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder all their goods. So that's the plan, and it has been approved. It, it's in concrete. In chapter 4, Mordecai learns of it. We pick up the story in verse 1. 
When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. In verse 5, Mordecai gets Esther's attention. The verse says, Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend to her, and he ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave them a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead for her people. And Hathak went and reported that to Esther that Mordecai had said. Now in chapter 4, verse 10, we see Esther's first response to Mordecai. It says, Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All of the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approached the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king, there is but one law, that they would be put to death unless the king extends his gold scepter to them and spares their lives. And thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So Mordecai says, you need to go talk to the king. Esther's answer, you don't understand. I can't do that. <laughs> that. That's against the law. That's extremely risky. You maybe don't understand how these inner court things work, so I'm going to explain it to you. You don't do that. That would be arrogance. That's death. The law is you just get killed if you aren't called, unless the king's feeling really merciful and decides to let you go. She says, Mordecai, you don't understand. I can't do that. 4.13. Mordecai is kind of a persistent guy. 4.13. He replies, Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position... For such a time as this. 4.15. Esther thinks about that. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days and a night, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king. And even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Esther sees the light, and she chooses to take the risk, and she goes to the king after some fasting and, and praying for God's protection. And the king is apparently in a good mood, you know, because he doesn't kill her. <laughs> he lets her live, and he says, what do you want? 5-4, she says this, If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. Remember, it's all about food in this book. Okay, Another banquet. So her first request is not about her people. It's just, I've got a meal and I'd like you to come. I think she wants a, a different setting than that to kind of really bring out the true request. In chapter 7, verse 1, we pick up the story. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again said, Queen Esther... What's your petition? He's kind of saying, 
I know there's something on your mind, okay? I, would you just tell me what it is you really want? Because I know you got something you're thinking about here. What is your petition? And it will be given to you. What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, and it will be granted. And Queen Esther answered, If I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. And if it were merely we had been sold as male or female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing you on it. And King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, well, who is he? Who is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. At that point, Haman drops his drumstick. And in fact, he's losing his appetite. This was going so well for Haman until this moment. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king got up in a rage and he left his wine and he went out in the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king explained, Will you even molest the queen while she is here with me in my house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up to kill Mordecai on, who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole they set up for Mordecai, and the king's fury subsided. So at this point, Haman is gone. But the problem is the edict still stands to wipe out the Jews. So what do you do? You can't change the edict. Well, they made a new edict. And the new edict said, we're going to allow the Jews on that day to defend themselves. In Chapter 9, verse 1, it says, On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. And on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand of those who hated them. And the Jews assembled in their cities and in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those who determined to destroy them. And no one could stand against them because the people of other nationalities were afraid of them. Chapter 9, verse 28, it says, They established this Feast of Purim then to remember this moment and to remember the provision of God, the protection of God, and the deliverance of God. So that is the book of Esther. That's the story of Esther. A couple takeaway points that struck me as I thought about that that maybe we can take home with us. The first one is this. <coughs> Recognize that God is in the business of merging our ordinary stories with his extraordinary story. Mordecai brought to Esther's attention that who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. There's an awful lot of ordinary in this story. Mordecai had a federal job and he worked in the government bureaucracy. Just got up and went to work every day. Nothing unusual about that, is it? We do it all the time. Getting up, going to work, doing your job. Esther was an orphan, and Uncle Mordecai took her in, took care of her like she was one of his own kids. Nothing much unusual about that, is it? We would all have done the same thing. Family member in need, you take care of them. A lot of ordinary here. 
But the point of the story is our normal stories, our ordinary lives can take dramatic turns when we, through faith in Christ, merge our ordinary lives with God's extraordinary plan for the ages. Have you ever asked, what if your circumstances are not accidents? What if the circumstances of your life today, and yes, I mean the good and the bad, what if those are part of a larger intentional plan? Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are those who are called according to His purpose. Now that verse is not for everyone. That verse is not saying all things work out good for everybody. And that, we know that's not true. It's not the way life is. But that verse is saying there's a group of people. And those group of people are Christians, those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And for those people, God weaves the circumstances of life together for good. I think it's easy for us to see God's sovereignty in all things when we look backwards, isn't it? We look back at Esther and we see how the story came together and how it ended and we see all the pieces coming together and that makes sense to us. We look, we look back at a guy like Joseph and we see, wow, what a terrible thing to have your own brother sell you into slavery. And, but we see the whole story and he goes to Egypt and he becomes second in command and he ends up saving his family from famine and saving the family through which Israel would come and Israel through which a savior would come to redeem all of mankind. We, we look back and we see all that and we see God's sovereignty and we see that as a wonderful thing. But have you ever thought of the fact that that wasn't just true for Joseph and that wasn't just true back for Esther, that our God never changes, which means that for every one of us in this room today, all of the circumstances of our life, the good and the bad, are just as much a part of a bigger plan. And that God can work it all together for kingdom promotion. Now, it takes faith to embrace that because we don't see that much up front, do we? When the circumstances of our life are just, you know, six inches from our nose, it's sometimes hard to see that perspective. But, you know, Esther didn't know how it was going to turn out either. I mean, we look at a lot of things in our life and we go, I just don't know how this is going to end up. Esther didn't know how it was going to turn out when she went before the king. She didn't know that he would be favorable and receive her. I mean, what if she went in on a bad day and he was kind of upset? I mean, that, was, that would have been the end of her life. She didn't know how it was going to turn out. We don't know how things are going to turn out. But God works all things together for good. And the, the sovereign God who could weave together a story like Joseph, who could weave together a story like Esther, is exactly the same God today. And he's weaving our stories together. What if God was just as involved in your normal circumstances in life as he was in Esther's and Mordecai's? How would that change the way you look at what you do tomorrow morning? How would that change the attitude you walked through this next week with if you saw God in the circumstances of your life? We need to recognize that God is in the business of merging our ordinary lives with his extraordinary story. We may not always see it, 
but it's always true. A second takeaway from this book that stood out to me is realize that we need to give some godly people access to our lives so they can help us understand and embrace God's will. Esther did not see the opportunity, did she? Mordecai had to bring it to her attention. He helped enlighten her understanding. He helped challenge her to trust in God in that moment. And I think we all need some people like that in our lives. You say you've got Facebook friends. Okay, well, that's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) You've got real friends. That's great. I'm glad I have real friends, but that may not even be what I'm talking about. I'm talking about godly people who really know you and you really know them. We need to give some godly people 24-7 access to our lives. Do you have any people in your life that are like that? Who's on your short list that when everything is on the line and you just can't get this one wrong, who do you talk to? About 40 years ago, I came to faith in Christ as a, as a young man. And there was a fellow there named Greg, and he kind of discipled me and helped me get started in this walk with Christ. And, and one of the things he taught me is that this isn't a journey you're going to take on your own. That this is a journey you take together with others. That this is a road you walk in community, not individually. And I heard what he said, and I, I looked at the Bible and the verses, and I concluded he's telling me the truth here. I mean, he's given me good advice that this is a journey you walk with other people together. So for 40 years, I've followed that path. When I got married, Sharon and I, ever since you know we've been married, we've always been a, a, a part of a church body, a fellowship. And not just to show up and watch, but a, a, an active serving part. We've, we've always been in a small group of other believers or leading a small group. You know, where we've lived a variety of different places over the 40 years. But there's never been a time in our life that we haven't been a, a part of a fellowship, that we haven't been a part of a small group where we're sharing life together. And we haven't had some discipling relationships on, that we're working with other people. That's just been a part of our 40 years of, of walking because Greg taught me that that's what Christians do. That that's how you do this thing. You, you, you live it out in community. And as we look, Sharon and I look back on those 40 years, we are, we are better people because of the people that we have walked with in this journey. Those, those folks over that 40 years, the names have changed, the people have changed, the locations have changed, but, but we are greatly enriched because we got to share in their lives, and they gave us a lot. This is something we do together. We need people who can give us godly access. So I would just challenge you, how, how connected are you? Do you have some, some Mordecai-like people in your life who can speak truth and challenge you to trust God? Maybe if you're just a casual you know, attender here, maybe it's time to really become immersed in the body of Christ and to get busy and to serve. Maybe it's time to, to find a small group where you can share life. Maybe it's time to, to get into a men's study or find someone who can mentor you or begin to really develop some intentional, godly mentoring relationships in your life. We need people like Mordecai in our world. Point three, 
Remember that realizing God's will for our lives will always involve faith-based action. Faith-based action. Once Esther sought God's leading, she knew what she needed to do. She needed to approach the king. Notice when she asked Mordecai to pray for her and she was going to get together and pray with her folks, she was not praying for wisdom. She knew what she needed to do. She was praying for courage. Praying for the courage to, to do it, to act on what she knew. You know, I think many times in our life, we know what the will of God is. It's not that we really need to be praying for wisdom. Lord, show me what to do. Um, the Bible's pretty clear on a lot of it. And we, we know what we ought to do. And I think sometimes we just need to maybe be praying for the courage to do it. Realizing God's will for our lives will always involve not just knowing some things or believing some things, but it will always involve faith-based action on what we know. Her action was approach the king. It was a risky move. From a worldly standpoint, obedience to God will always, I think, seem risky. But from a heavenly standpoint, disobedience is by far the greatest risk. For Esther, faith-based action meant going before the king with her request, and she didn't know how that was going to turn out. What does faith-based action mean for you today? It's probably not going before a king. But you know, the Holy Spirit is constantly working on all of us and showing us the next steps. So there's something in my life and there's something in your life that is a next step of faith-based action. Well, how do you apply a historical story like this, you know, to our lives? I think those are a couple of things we can look at. But I would encourage you to do this. Please don't mix the big picture. Maybe, uh, maybe you're here tonight and, and you're somewhat in the situation my friend Bill was when we met 27 years ago. Um, you're, a, you're a person who's you, you're successful at many levels, but to be honest, you just haven't figured out how this life thing works. And, and you're trying to put the pieces together. I would just say to you this tonight, the light comes on and the pieces fit together only when you start by taking the first step. And the first step is humbling yourself and inviting Jesus Christ to come into your life as your Lord and Savior. If you have not done that, that's your takeaway for tonight. And if you heard me say those words and you're thinking, I don't think I know what he means by that, then your takeaway is come talk to me, come talk to one of the staff members, and just say, would you explain that to me? Would you tell me what that means? Because I think... There's something there. There's an amazing gift there. And it all starts there. Romans 8.28, all things have worked together for good to those who love us. Our questions for reflection I would leave you with. Are you allowing God to merge your story with his greater story? Are there godly people that you're giving access to your life and you're investing in them? Do you have some Mordecais that are showing you the way? And, and do you have some Esters that you're helping out? and show on the way to, and where in your life might you need to take some faith-based action. Esther's about discovering what life is really all about, and that's discovering God at work in and through the story of your life for His glory.